0: Okay, you should have an outline today with lesson number seven on it entitled Generational Sin with a Question Mark. Now, this would not normally be a part of this series. Doesn't matter. It's okay that we're doing it. But I brought it up last week, and I think I created so many questions. I had a number of you come to me after the class and start asking about generational curses. Um, and so, I, uh, I want us to, to talk about that today. So, we're, we're going to be talking about so-called generational curses, which I'll just tell you right now, I don't believe the Bible teaches. But there is such a thing, I believe, as generational sin that we'll, we'll talk about and we'll, we'll clarify what all that means. Uh, last week when I mentioned it, it, it came out of the story of a little boy who is possessed in Scripture, And then I told you the story of someone that I know who's adopted a late-year-old. And I can't say that she's possessed, but boy, it gives every sign of it. Then I've had a few of you come up to me on your own and say, you know what? I either know someone that's had an experience like that or I've had an experience like that. So it's more common than we would like to believe. We live in a very spiritual world. We tend to not think about that because it's flesh and blood to us. But remember, Paul says, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And he goes on to list all these different dimensions of the spirit world. So we are very much in a spirit world, even though we're still in flesh and blood bodies. But we're caught between these two worlds. We're part of them. And we're caught in the warfare that is going on. And that's why I think it's so important that we talk about these things I also want you to know that I, I, I do this with fear and trembling because I'm kind of treading where the ice gets a little thin. There's been so much abuse in the area of demonology and demon possession and generational curses and exorcism and all of that that it's sometimes difficult to separate fact from fiction uh, from just people's emotions that have run away with them and they believe and teach things that can't even be justified by Scripture. So we have to be incredibly careful that we don't speak where the Bible is silent. And and I know that sometimes we want to know more than the Bible says. Now that's kind of an oxymoron because most of us don't know but a fraction of what the Bible says, right? But at the same time, there are certain subjects that we just are so curious about and oddly enough, the Bible normally has a lot more to say about those subjects than we think it does. We just don't know how to kind of sift it out and, and and find it. At the same time, the Bible doesn't tell us everything we want to know. God's intent with His Word was to tell us everything we need to know, not necessarily everything that we want to know. This is why even though I have very strong beliefs about end-time prophecy and all of that and... Uh, we we teach on it. We're not emphatic that we have to be the ones who are right because there are very there are numerous orthodox views. Even though Paul and I disagree with most of those views, that doesn't separate Christians from non-Christian. You, there's there's a number of different views, and so we try to be very careful to not be dogmatic when the Bible doesn't give us the um, the freedom to be. Does does that make sense? So anyway, uh, what we're going to be talking about today is one of those... I don't want to call it tangential because it's not a tangent at all, but it's one of those areas that we kind of do so with a little bit of uh, trepidation. I mean, I I teach and preach God's Word all the time with trepidation because I I don't want to speak where God hasn't, and I don't want to be silent when God has spoken. So it's just a, a tall order, and this whole series on demons, fallen angels... Is one of those ones where we have to be very careful that we don't get off into anecdotal stuff and people's experience, and you know, because it's, uh, it's sometimes not verifiable, not only in just practical verification, but it's not verifiable in scripture. So I just want you to, to, to be aware of that. Uh, the first thing that I want to do is remind you of this story in Mark chapter 9 about a boy. And we're not really sure exactly his age, but they brought a boy to Jesus. And this boy is obviously possessed by demons. And the the demon would cause him to foam at the mouth, cause him to roll around in convulsions. And uh, Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, what does he mean by childhood? Well, I think he means early childhood. So this boy, regardless of what age he is when he's brought to Jesus had been battling with this possession since he was a little boy. Well, that's kind of spooky, isn't it? Because how in the world could a little boy end up possessed? I mean, you know, surely he, he hadn't reached some age of accountability uh, and, uh, and been possessed because he had gone off on some horrible sinning streak. So how in the world does a little boy get possessed? And this is not the only example of this in the gospel accounts. Now, some would want to say, well, that was during the time of Jesus. Well, there's nothing in Scripture that even remotely implies, at least that I'm aware of, that the demons were only that active then and they're not now. Now, they may have learned a lot in the 2,000 years and have learned how to mask what they do. And remember, generally the demons do not want to show their hand as being the repulsive beings that they are. But Paul tells us they, they disguise themselves and masquerade as angels of light. So just remember that generally the demons don't want to show themselves for what they really are. Because that that blows the deception cover. They're far more into the covert actions than they are the overt actions. But this this is a biblical example of what's going on. Now, then we talked about last week a passage of Scripture... Uh, that we find in the, the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 20, where we're reading the Ten Commandments. God's top ten, so to speak. There are many more commandments than just the ten, but these are the first ten. And remember the passage says, God speaking, "...for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments." Now notice visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation. What is it that God meant when he said that? Well, that's what we're going to try to unpack today and see if we can find a biblical response to just exactly what God meant. There are a couple of things at least I can think of that he, he could have meant. Uh, and one of them is... The consequences of Israel's sin would, would outlast the generation and Israel would be dealing with the consequences for many generations. Well, that's of course true for all cultures. We are now beginning to pay for the sins of our fathers and grandfathers who had begun to turn their backs on the very thing that made America unique protecting our inalienable rights, but since World War II, we've let down the guard, and now we're reaping this terrible harvest. Look at the harvest we're reaping from the Woodstock hippie uh, protest generation, because they're now people like Bill Clinton that had been leading, and look at what a mess. Well, that can that can trans... Uh, 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 I'm trying to think of the word... Uh, not transgress but go across numerous transcend thank you uh, that can transcend a number of generations so that could simply be what god is saying but others believe that he's saying more than that and that's what we want to talk about so let's begin this by saying what he is not saying there's a teaching that's very popular that i don't believe is biblical and that is the teaching that there's such a thing as a generational curse that a generational curse can be placed on a family, and until that curse is lifted, each successive generation falls victim to that curse. Uh, the, uh, the Word of Faith folks get way, way into this, and I understand that even the critical race theory folks are kind of using a, a um, hybrid of this. But maybe not, uh, uh, in you know, in stressing Scripture. Well, what does the Bible say about God cursing generations? Well, we can go to Ezekiel chapter 18, and there is a very clear passage of Scripture where God is rebuking the Israelites for believing in generational curses. So he says, what do you mean when you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge? In other words, the children are suffering from what the fathers did through some kind of curse. As I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now, it's a very important point that we're going to drive home Uh, As we move through this lesson this morning, notice it's the person who sins that God is going to punish, not someone who's inherited their sins. And we'll, we'll make this even stronger in a moment. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Well, I think, in my opinion, that does away forever with this idea of generational curses. That somehow a witch or a, a male witch that we often call a warlock, but they're basically just all witches, according to scripture, they could place some kind of curse or a demon could place some kind of curse on a family line, and that line just carries that curse from generation to generation. I do not believe that that is biblical. And so, I, I discount that. Now, let's fill in some blanks here on these bullet points. The first bullet point, uh, the curse of sin is passed from one generation to the other. Now, you say, well, I thought you said you didn't believe in general, generational curses. No, I'm talking about the curse of sin. That is the only generational curse There's one verse, there are many verses that you could use, but there's one verse that teaches that, Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. This is the curse of sin, what we often call our fallen nature, our sin nature. Well, if you're going to call that a generational curse, then yes, that is a generational curse. Adam placed us under the curse of sin. So in that sense, there is... A generational curse but I do not believe there's a generational curse in that there's a special curse that falls upon a particular family line now Adam places us under the curse but the Bible tells us that Christ uh, became a curse for us to release us from the curse Galatians 3 10 for as many as are of the works of the law uh, are under the curse for it is written, Cursed is everyone who's not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So, what Paul is doing there in his great dissertation about you can't be saved by keeping God's law. There are a lot of people who believe, Well, if I can just be good enough, I'll be saved. No, no one could ever be good enough. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So, Paul is telling us that we're all under this curse. We received from Adam. The law simply points it out to us and shows us just how condemned we are. But Christ became a curse for us. So he took the curse from Adam. And so when we're in Christ, then we are relieved from the guilt of the curse. Now for those who are not in Christ, they're still under the curse of Adam. And they will die under that curse and be lost forever. Now beyond then the general curse of sin, uh, the Bible clearly teaches, we saw it in Ezekiel, but we'll look at some other verses, that children are not responsible for the sins of their parents. Let me give you a couple of passages of Scripture that clearly uh, articulate that. Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen: "...fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin." And then a restatement of that in Second Chronicles chapter 25 verse 4. So the Bible is incredibly clear that I will not be held guilty or accountable for a sin my father committed. Or a sin my grandfather committed. I'm not going to have a curse placed upon me uh, because of that. So therefore then this truth comes jumping out of scripture. Each person is responsible for his or her own sin, based upon their own decisions slash actions. So we, we bring upon ourselves judgment, or God's discipline, if we're believers, based upon our own decisions, our own actions. It has nothing to do with someone else. Now let's write another couple of passages down that actually teach that. Uh, we're still in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 26, 27, and 28. Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, that is kind of an eternal truth that would transcend the Old and the New Testament era. The whole concept That we have a choice before us. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. It's the same thing in the days of Moses and then leading over into Joshua. So it's before us. We can either choose a blessing or a curse. But notice, we choose. Someone else does not choose to put us under some kind of curse. And then if you go to the book of Joshua, chapter 6, verse 18. And you... By all means, abstain from the accursed things, God tells Joshua to then tell the Israelites, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. Now there is a hint there at the very end of that verse that there is a net effect. For those who choose poorly and place themselves under a particular curse because of their own decisions and their own actions. Well that leads us then into what I believe God may be talking about when he says visiting the iniquity upon the third and the fourth generation. Because even though I do not believe in generational curses, I think we've pointed that out, that's not biblical. There is a net effect though... On succeeding generations If the parents or the grandparents Are incredibly wicked or ungodly There is what appears to be a residual effect Some of it is just pure logical Some of it I do believe is spiritual So let's talk about that This is Hank Handegraaff Uh, uh, Hank has had a number of changes in his life Over the last few years And I I have uh, lost a lot of confidence in him But he's still a brilliant theologian in a lot of ways and I thought he said it quite well he says scripture clearly communicates that consequences not curses are passed on through the generations so I'll make that distinction no curses but there are consequences That's very important because if you listen to the Word of Faith, people, they've got all these curses and they're lifting all these curses. And in the name, you know, of of the Lord, we're going to do this. And by the Word of Faith, we're... I just don't believe that's biblical. But I do believe that there are consequences that transcend generations. And that then puts a tremendous onus upon us. Well, well, what, what happens... When you make the wrong choices. Well you know. Personal repentance is the only remedy. There is only one remedy. Isaiah 55 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have mercy on him. And to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. So notice then. There's no hocus pocus. About getting out from under a curse. All we have to do. Is turn from our wickedness. Repent. This is what John is saying in 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sin. Remember the word confess there. Comes from the Greek word meaning to agree with. It's not just that you're willing to admit it. That's a good thing. But we have to agree with God. It's more than admission. It's agreement. We say God I see this like you do. Because here's the problem. If we don't see our sin like God sees it. We won't stop it. We just won't stop it. So that's what confession means. Now if we confess our sins, what is He? Faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So any kind of a, quote, curse, if you want to use that word curse, that we've placed ourselves under, real repentance lifts the consequences pretty much, although there can be a residual after effect if we've made severely bad choices. And that's what we're going to, Kind of focus on. So let's go back then to Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6, and look at that highlighted section. Visiting what? The iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. What is that? Well, again, I want to reemphasize that is not a curse. I do believe, though, it is speaking of consequences, and some of them are spiritual. Chuck Swindoll, for years, has been a pretty stalwart Bible preacher and teacher. He's more of a teacher, I think, than he is a preacher. But I don't know sometimes where the dividing line is. So, um, But anyway, uh, Chuck is is a, a prolific author. And I've never read anything of his that I I, I disagreed with. Uh, you may not be fond of Swindoll or whatever. That's fine. Uh, you know, different strokes for different folks. But, but I, I've just never read anything that was off the wall like nutso. From Chuck Swindoll. And in uh, in, uh, mid, uh, in the mid-1980s, in fact, May the 1st, 1984, was when it was first released, he wrote a book entitled, You and Your Child. I have often used this book in series that I've preached for the family and how to raise up godly children and what does the Bible say about discipline and spanking and all of that. I've, I've often used this book as a backdrop for folks. If you do not have this book, of course, like all books... Uh, it's gone through different revisions, and they've, they've made additions to it. This is, I think, a tremendous book about um, parenting and child-rearing and discipline. Well, in the book, You and Your Child, Chuck tackles this very issue that we're talking about today, this visiting the iniquity uh, of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation. So let, let's look at some scripture that will lead us into what he teaches that I think can be very helpful for us. First of all, let's look at Psalm 139, verses 1 through 3. Now, you're probably familiar with this chapter in Psalms because it has one of the greatest passages on the humanity of the unborn child that God formed us in our mother's womb, and in our, he, he knew our inward parts and all of that. But above that, listen to what Psalm 139 says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. You see that word ways? It's an interesting word. If you go to Proverbs 22, 6, a verse that probably all of us are familiar with, train up a child in the way. Notice that word way there again. That he should go and when he is old... That word old is also very important in that verse. He will not depart from it. Now, here's what I want to focus on. I want to focus on that word way for just a moment. Now, I want to quote from, from Chuck in a follow-up study that he did to you and your child entitling the bent, entitled The Bents in Your Baby. We'll come back to that and you'll understand what I mean by bents. Let's, let's read this quote. Just as God was intimately acquainted with David's ways... Psalm 139. So also is he with your child's ways, and I could add our ways. The Hebrew word for ways is the same word used in Proverbs two six, and includes every aspect of your child's being. Your child's sitting and rising, its behaviors, ups and downs, moods, comings and goings, pursuits. And even his or her thoughts that are so secret to you are pages of an open book to God. Your child's hair texture, eye color. Voice timber and body shape, personality, interests, moods, and abilities. God entwines all of these intricate threads in a unique pattern to create the masterpiece that is your child. These characteristics, or bents, now there's the word, bents, B-E-N-T-S, become more visible over time. Each stage of your child's lifespan, infancy, childhood, adolescence, early adulthood, reveals new features of God's design. Your job as a parent is to fit your training to your child so that it is in keeping with his or her individual gift or bent, B-E-N-T. Like everyone, your child has godly bents and sinful bents. Seeing the bent uh, accurately is the first parental task Responding appropriately is the second. Okay, so that was a long quote, uh, but I think it's worthwhile. Then here's a quote from Focus on the Family, I think is also apropos. Common sense tells us that behavior and attitude problems tend to run in families, just like physical characteristics of height, weight, hair color, and complexion. In the same way, certain types of sin can pass from one generation to generation, excuse me, from generation to generation. This is particularly true of addictive behaviors such as alcoholism. Similarly, physical and sexual abuse might become ingrained in the psychological legacy of certain families. However, none of this should be viewed in terms of an irreversible curse. Okay, so you see the distinction that's being made? So it's very, very important that we understand what this word weighs, which is the same Hebrew word translated bent. Now, what do I mean by Bent. Well, consider a steel bar. If it is straight, it looks like that. If it's bent, it looks like that. Okay? That's a bent bar. Now, when the Bible talks about bents or ways, some of those are wonderful. They're good. But some of them are very bad. We have good ways, we have bad ways. We have good vents. we have bad bents. Our children are a composite of us, their parents. And I don't quite understand it, but I have witnessed through my whole lifetime that there are certain things that seem to transmit beyond physical characteristics. Notice how sometimes a son will almost have the same mannerisms of his father. And how do you explain that? Well, part of it is learned behavior. That's a very important thing. But there's something, it appears more than that. Families, as, as uh, focused on the Family mentioned, will often have a history of alcoholism or dependency problems. I've seen this. I've watched it as a pastor and having to counsel people. I've looked at people's families and not that I've done, you know, extensive research on their family, but they'll tell me, you know, my grandfather or my grandmother battled with this and my dad or my mom battled with this and now I'm battling with this. there seems to be not a generational curse. Again, but there seems to be some kind of spiritual transference. Now, in the end, the Bible makes it incredibly clear. Nobody can cop out by saying, well, it's my parents. I'm not to blame. It's my parents. No, no, no. Every man, every woman will be judged based upon their actions. But to deny... That there is no transference of part of who we are to our children or our grandchildren. I think is just completely illogical. And we're not only ignoring scripture, we're just ignoring obvious human experience. So what is this then? Well, I believe that it's found in understanding this word way, which is the same word translated iniquities in Exodus 20 that we read. That I will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the third and the fourth generation. It's the same word as the word bent or bents plural. So here's here's the idea and I think this is probably what God was getting at. Parents have to be incredibly aware of the fact that their children are not only inheriting certain traits from them. Some of them could be spiritual inclinations. But they're learning things from their parents. Do you know one of the reasons why we're now suffering from this mass um, uh, uh, migration from the church of kids that grew up in Christian homes and went to Christian schools and went to Sunday school and all that? Ken Ham wrote his book, Already Gone. If you haven't read that book, I'm telling you, you need to get a copy of that book, Already Gone, especially if you're a parent or a grandparent. You need to read that book. It's not a long read. It's not a technical read. But it's based upon research of a thousand kids that came out of Christian homes and and churches like this one and, and jettisoned their parents' faith and have rejected Christ. Why? Well, one of the things that they found is that they decided their parents' Christianity was an act, even though it may not have been, because the only time they saw their parents pick up the Bible or the only time they saw their parents or heard their parents pray was on Sunday when they went to church. Now, it's not that their parents were hellions the rest of the week, but their parents didn't talk about spiritual things during the week. They didn't see their parents reading their Bibles. They didn't hear a lot of prayer. They just saw it on Sunday. So the kids concluded, well, this is a Sunday act. And then Monday through Saturday, their old, plain old mom and dad, and then we put on our Christian gear, and we go back to church on Sunday. Now, some people, it's worse than that because it may actually be an act. And their parents kind of become Jekyll and Hyde. And just as soon as church is over on Sunday and everybody's got the Christian act out of the way, they revert back to a fairly godless kind of lifestyle. Well, the kids pick up on that just, man, they, they are learning machines. And they, they draw conclusions really fast. Sometimes conclusions we didn't even mean to send to them. So they conclude, this is an act, I don't need it. That's part of the problem. Parents have not been actively engaged. Let the school do that. Let the church do that. We got a youth ministry. Let that youth minister take care of that. Let the children's minister take care of that. I'm telling you, through the years, I've had parents come to me and say, what's wrong with your student ministry? I said, well, I don't know. I think we've got to pre- No, 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 no. My kids are doing this. Quite- what's your youth minister doing? They didn't fix this. And I'm thinking, good grief. That's your job. The job of the youth minister or the children's pastor is to simply augment what you're doing through the week. If we abdicate our responsibility to somebody else that's the professional, the professional, number one, doesn't have the access to your children like you do. And secondly, they don't have the ability to mold your children like you do. You say, well, I haven't molded my children much. Yes, you have. Whether you know it or not. You are molding your children and your grandchildren. This is so critical. I, I, I don't know how to stress this more. So when the Bible says train up a child in the way he should go, what he's talking about there is make sure that the proper bents are in your children or you, or you teach them to them. And then when they're old or not, depart from it. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So it's very important then that we understand this. So what are bents? They are particular personality traits, learning strengths, and weaknesses. You might add sins. Now you say, well, Dan, you know, I, I don't know this third and fourth generation bit. Well, let me give you a biblical example of a particular bad bent following four generations of a family. It's in Abraham. Some of you are already aware of this. If you go, you don't have to turn there today, but if you write this down, Genesis 12:13 and Genesis 20 verse 2, you find Abraham lying about Sarah being his sister. Well, it was a part partial truth because she was his half sister. But he lies and says she's my sister to save his own skin, right? We don't have time to get into all the story. But he lies and he calls his wife his sister. So much so that he brings God's judgment down on a particular kingdom. And finally the king understands it and says, what have you done to us? I brought her into my harem and was going to consummate the marriage. And who knows what kind of judgment God would have brought down on us. What in the world are you trying to do to us? And he rebukes this godly man Abraham who apparently has a bent for lying when he's in a tight spot. Now you say, well, that's Abraham. Well, follow his son. Isaac tells the same lie about his wife, Rebecca. He says she is his sister. So he doesn't just have the same bent, he has the same bent to lie the same way. You say, okay, well, that's two generations. Well, go to the third one. Jacob lies to his parents and says to his father, I am Esau. He's a liar. Well, that's the third generation that seems to have a real problem with the truth. You can go to the fourth generation's Jacob's sons lie to him about what they did to Joseph. Remember? They sold him off to slavery, but they bring him his coat of many colors and say he must have been a wild animal that tore him to shreds. And poor old Jacob weeps for many, many years until Joseph ends up in Egypt and is a grown man and all that. And if you know the story of Joseph, then you know. Now, I want you to look at that. There's four generations of one family that has a tremendous problem with lying. Now, does that prove uh, that that's what Exodus 20 is saying? No. I mean, it's it's not empirical proof. But I do believe that that is what we're talking about here. You see, they saw Abraham doing that. And so each generation thinks, well, I guess that's how you do business. We have to be incredibly careful as Christians what we say and do around our children and our families because they're going to assume that's the way it's done. And the younger they are, the more indelible that mark is made in them and much harder to erase, to chisel off. Now there's much more that could be said about that in child rearing and child training. Probably ought to do a series on that eventually and not to say that we haven't done those in the past, but... But this is incredibly important here because I suspect that may be what God was talking about in Exodus 20. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the third and fourth generation. Now, any one of those generations could have, by an act of their own will, said the bent stops here. It stops here. But they had to do that. Now, I don't have time this morning to get into great detail, but my own family has a bent of unforgiveness. Now, I'm talking about unforgiveness and bitterness. So much so that there's family feuds and splits. I can follow it through my, my uh, maternal grandmother all the way back to at least her mother and maybe to her grandmother. I see, and I love my grandmother. She was a wonderful lady, but she had this. Not as bad, though, as previous generations I see it operating in my mother. And I'm not condemning my mother. Don't misunderstand. But she battles with this. And guess what I've battled with early in my life? Same thing. You say, well, we all are unforgiving toward people at times. and, And if we're not careful, it can become bitterness. Oh, I'm not suggesting that. I'm talking about something that is far more than just the casual unforgiveness or bitterness. I'm talking about a family trait that I've personally studied in my family And I decided, now I'm no Holy Joe or anything like that, but I decided that the bent was going to stop with me. I was not going to pass that down to my son and my daughter and to my grandchildren because I have watched the havoc that it has caused in my family. And it has destroyed relationships. It has destroyed lives. It's just terrible what has happened. A bent of unforgiveness and bitterness. Now, some of you may be able to relate with me because you may have that very same bent. But there are other bents. Look at your family. I'll bet you there's a certain kind of vulnerability in some of your families if you look at it and you fight with it in your own life. Well, if you don't check it with you, you're going to unconsciously pass it right on. And until somebody, some generation says, the bent stops here. It will continue to be learned and passed. And that becomes a terrible family legacy. And I've watched it in other families. I've studied it. And in counseling, I've dealt with it. So, what do you do then? Is this just a no-win proposition? Well, of course not. And much more needs to be said on this. But there's always hope in Christ. Notice that in that same passage in Exodus 20, he says, even though I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, but showing mercy to thousands. What God is trying to say is, look, yes, the consequences of unrepented of sin will follow through. But if you're willing to, to fix it, if you're willing to repent, I show mercy to thousands. So compare third and fourth generation to thousands. What God is trying to say is, my grace is much larger. Where sin... Uh, Abounded grace did much more abound Acts 2.39 for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call so there's always hope Paul even talks about the faith that he saw in Timothy that he actually saw in Timothy's mother and grandmother now see there's the opposite of the Abraham bent of lying there's the godly bent So that's what we want to be passing down, these godly bents. Now, one other thing that we need to touch here before we're out of time, and that is the word in Proverbs 22, 6, not only train up a child in the way that he should go, but when he is old. Now, we typically understand that to mean, well, finally they'll come back around to the truth. They may be 94 before they do, but they'll eventually come back to it. Actually, that's not what that word old means in the Hebrew language. Let's go back to Swindoll in his book, You and Your Child. It's very worthwhile. The word old means hair on the chin. I understand the literal Hebrew is bearded one. Now, a man doesn't start growing a beard when he is 90. He begins to grow a beard when he is approaching maturity. The promise is that when your child reaches maturity, when he is ready to leave home, he will not depart from his training. It's not a promise concerning people 90 years old. It's a promise for those who having been trained correctly, there's the key word, are leaving the nest and entering into maturity. Doesn't that change Proverbs 22, 6 and our understanding of it? That if you train up a child in the way, the bents that he should have or, or her, that when they're old, meaning when they are mature, they will not depart from it. See, that is what we're not experiencing in America. We're experiencing the opposite. When they're old, maturity, they jettison their parents' faith. So, that is the key. So, when we're talking about demonic activity and demonic possession... We have to understand then that there are no curses. There's no generational curses and all that. But there are consequences that can be passed from one generation to the next. And we have to actively deal with this. So the the closing point then would be this. Successfully passing the baton of faith. I probably should have said the baton of faithfulness. Because a lot of Christians stop at faith with, well, I'm saved. Well, actually saved and having the faith and being faithful are one and the same in Scripture. This idea that you can be saved but not be faithful is foreign to the Bible. It's foreign to the Old Testament, and it's foreign to the New. This is why John says, Anybody who says they know God but they live like a devil is a liar. The truth not not them. They've never known God. You cannot claim to have the faith but not live the faith. This is why James said, What good is your faith if it doesn't produce in you faithfulness? It's like a man looking at the mirror. He sees his reflection, but the minute he walks away, he forgets what he looks like. So we need to successfully pass the baton of, and I'm going to amend this, to faithfulness to the next generation. That is always the goal, the relay race, where you pass that baton. We have not done that in America And that's why we still have all of this nonsense and all this demonism and all this occult. I've watched Christian parents let their kids listen to all kinds of nonsense that honors Satan and worships the devil. My brothers and I years ago used to travel around doing a seminar on rock music primarily, new at that time, called satanic rock. And all these Christian kids listened to all this Satanism. uh, Four, five, six, eight hours a day. And the parents didn't even know it. Sadly, some of the parents didn't even seem to care. And somehow they thought that these kids could just have a constant input of Satanism and glorify the devil and shout at the devil and all this kind of stuff, and it not affect their their, their lifestyle and who they are and what they believe. It's crazy. So, I think this is so important in our understanding. So, this brings us then to kind of the closure where in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm not going to take time to read this whole passage because we're really out of time and Miss Lucy's going to ring that bell real soon. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, this is where God says, Look, I'm the Lord your God. The Lord is one. That's the great Shema. See, I was right. I'm a prophet. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Remember, that's exactly what Jesus said when he was asked. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You're going to teach them diligently to your children. And when you walk in the way. Notice this, when you walk in the way. See that word way? See, it's the same thing. Christianity is a lifestyle, not an experience. It can be experience, but it is a lifestyle. And then one other passage of scripture, and we're done. And that is... Uh, in uh, Psalm 127, verses 3, 4, and 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. I've always loved the picture of this, of children being like arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, what does a warrior do with an arrow? He puts it in that bow, he pulls it back, and he does what? He fires it at the enemy. Paul says we're to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we're in a spiritual warfare. And godly parents should be firing their properly trained children with the right bents out as arrows into that war. We're not doing that, and that's why we have the stuff that we're dealing with now. So that's what I meant last week when I was reading that passage of Scripture to you and I was talking about that because I do believe that there are residual things passed down from generation to generation, not generational curses, but still effects that if we don't check those, the next generation will have to deal with it because we didn't. Very important truth, isn't it? It's a very, very important truth. So that's what I was talking about. Uh, I hope that kind of fit in <laughs> with our series. It, it's obviously actually more on child rearing and parenting and all that. But since I brought it up last week, I didn't think I could leave that uh, dangling participle just blowing in the wind. So needed to deal with it. So there it is. We'll do our last lesson on demonism starting next week. Okay? So we'll, uh, we'll finish this up uh, starting next week. Thank you so much for your patience letting me finish that. God bless you. Yes. Thank you so, so very, very much. You're dismissed. We'll have service here in a little while.